0: From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: The job is to do justice. And sometimes that means um, convicting someone and seeking a jail term. And sometimes that means walking away entirely from a case. Doing justice is our job, not putting people in prison, and certainly not mistreating uh, the defendants that we encounter. That's Chuck Rosenberg.
0: He spent his career working in law enforcement. Among other things, he was the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia and also the Southern District of Texas. And most recently, he was the acting head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. He resigned last fall. We're going to talk about why he left, how to try a terrorist in court, how to combat the opioid crisis, and a lot more. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Kelly in Weehawken. I'm just wondering if Andy McCabe has any kind of legal recourse to get his benefits. Thanks, Kelly, for your question. The first thing I'll say about Andy McCabe is, and you should know, that I go back with him a long time. I've known him for many years. When I was a young line assistant in the U.S. Attorney's Office, Andy McCabe was a young FBI agent working on Russian organized crime cases. And we actually investigated and prosecuted cases together. And he's a friend of mine. And then I worked with him again, obviously, when he was rising through the ranks of the FBI when I was a United States Attorney. And I will tell you, based on my personal experience, everything I know about Andy is that he's a good, upstanding, honorable law enforcement official and person. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for him and admiration for him and knows, and I know that he has spent, you know, all of his adult life, basically, trying to protect the public. That said, it does appear, and I don't know what the details are because the report has not been filed publicly, it does appear that there are professional career folks at the FBI and the Department of Justice who have concluded that Andy McCabe was not candid about some interactions with the press. I don't know if that's true or not, but you have to take that seriously, whether or not you like Andy McCabe, whether or not he's your friend like he is my friend. What is upsetting and what is unfortunate, separate and apart from whether or not he committed some transgression, I think it has been you know, bordering on disgusting that a sitting president of the United States has singled out someone by name for humiliation and tweets and basically looks like he has put pressure on other people in a race to beat the clock for his entire pension to be vesting, his 50th birthday last Sunday. Now, again, I have great respect for the career people. And if they made a conclusion that Andy McCabe should be terminated, and once I see the report, I'll have a view on that, but I, I can respect that. I have never seen a case where there's been such a rush that looks so apparently like a vindictive effort to deprive someone of their full pension. Now, I will say also that I don't think he's going to lose his whole pension, but certainly a part of it because of the timing of the termination. In my experience, it's usually the case that personnel and employment actions are not taken, A, with that level of swiftness, and B, not until the report... Is finished, and it doesn't look like it's finished, but, you know, if the facts change, I'll revisit this. Now, back to your direct question. I'm not an expert in employment law, and I'm certainly not an expert in civil service employment law. Uh, but Andy McCabe has hired a prominent lawyer, Michael Bromwich, who himself led up the inspector general's office for the Department of Justice for a number of years. He's a serious lawyer. He knows the Byzantine nature of that bureaucracy, He knows what the norms are. He knows what the rules are. He knows what the standards are. And he put out a very strong statement. And given that the president, even after Andy McCabe was terminated, sent out what I think could be viewed as an additionally vindictive, boastful tweet about the firing of a particular civil servant, I think gives grist to a lawsuit. I don't know how meritorious such a lawsuit will be, but it wouldn't surprise me if one was brought. It wouldn't surprise me if it causes the president some difficulty and it's just another example of the president not only hurting institutions or attempting to hurt individual people that he names by name but also hurting himself the president doesn't know how to keep quiet and it hurts not only other people it hurts himself too we had another question about andy mccabe this one from listener gail sarah who emailed hi preet can you please explain why it seems so consequential that andrew mccabe was fired can't Bob Mueller call on him for testimony anyway? After all, he doesn't cease to exist just because he is no longer a government employee, right? Many thanks for clearing this up. Gail Sarah. Uh, Gail, that's that's another good question. With respect to the Mueller investigation, I'm not sure that there's a significant consequence in terms of getting testimony from him. It has already been reported, and I credit this reporting, that Andy McCabe took contemporaneous notes of meetings that he had with the president. Now, the president later tweeted, that McCabe must be lying because he didn't see McCabe literally with a pen in hand while he was talking to the president taking notes. That's not often how it works. People take notes of conversations when they're fresh in their mind after the conversation takes place, in part not to offend the person who you're taking notes about. So I believe there to be notes. I believe that Andy McCabe probably took them scrupulously, and I believe that he has turned them over to the Mueller office. Let me make one more point about this business of note-taking that happens in real life. It's come up in a couple of circumstances in connection with Jim Comey, reportedly taking notes contemporaneously of his conversations with the president. So in real life, when you have what is an uncomfortable conversation with someone and you want to be sure that you get it right later because you think that you might be asked to testify about it or give information about it, you take notes. It doesn't mean that you always take notes in connection with everyone you meet, particularly your, you know, your boss or someone at whose pleasure you serve. But if you have reason to think... That there's going to be a dispute later, or you have reason to worry that the person is saying something they shouldn't say, then cautious people, particularly investigators, take notes. I'll give you another example. When I was an assistant US attorney, I generally had a cordial and professional relationship with defense lawyers on the other side. And we would have conversations and negotiations about pleas or about, you know, dates and timing of providing discovery and all sorts of things, as professionals do. And most lawyers I trusted to keep their word, and I hope people trusted me to keep my word. But there was a subset of lawyers you would find that you didn't communicate with on the telephone because they wouldn't keep their word. And there would always be disputes with the court about what they said. And with respect to those people, you insisted that you communicated in writing. Or at a minimum, as soon as the phone call was over, you wrote down your recollection of the call, you made explicit notes, and you put them in the file, and or you sent them to the opposing counsel to tell them, this is my understanding of what was said, and then you can dispute it. And you do that with people who you don't trust. You don't necessarily do it with everyone. And it's telling, I think, on the part of a number of professionals, feeling the need, with respect to this president, to take those kinds of notes. Our next question is in an email from Lainey Whites, who writes, Mr. Trump has just added Joseph de Genova to his team. John Dowd is considering leaving as his client will not follow instructions. And Ty Cobb is getting assurances he's not on the firing line. Who are Trump's lawyers and what does it tell us? Well, that's a great question. And obviously, when high stakes things are going on, people look to the lawyers because the lawyers are the ones who are the public face of the defense of their client, in this case, the president of the United States. I'll tell you quite frankly, a lot of them, based on my experience and personally with some of them, there are a lot of bark and a lot less bite. Donald Trump seems to be attracted to people and attracts lawyers. Who are all about punching back, fighting in the press, yelling about the people who are on witch hunts against him, rather than focused on people who are excellent, rigorous courtroom lawyers who meet with great success in actual cases in real life. You know, And as I said last week, there are people like Emmett Flood, who is incredibly well respected and an excellent lawyer in all ways, who looks like he is balking at coming on board the Trump team. And just this week, it was reported that another very, very prominent famous and competent lawyer who once served as the solicitor general of the United States Ted Olson has also begged off. So the Trump team is not I think as high caliber as you would expect a president to have and the likelihood of it getting to be higher caliber given these reports of people begging off is unlikely as well. You know and just let me make another point it's a very peculiar thing for those of us who are practicing law for a long time what's going on between Trump and his lawyers on the one hand On the one hand, you have lawyers claiming that they're acting on behalf of the president without talking to him. And on the other hand, you have Donald Trump apparently looking like he's not listening to his lawyers. You have people who are the paid representatives of a special client, the president of the United States, each of whom claim from time to time when it suits them that they're acting independently of each other. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I've never seen anything like it before. And I've certainly never seen anything like it before at this level.
1: Hi, this is Steve Payne in Bellingham, Washington. I'm reading stories about Trump requiring White House staff signing non-disclosure agreements that apply both while working and when leaving the White House or be subject to multi-million dollar penalty. All staffers work for the public, so I can't imagine this is legal. Or is it something that will have to be tested in the courts? Because like too many things Trump, it's never been done before. Thank you, and certainly enjoy your podcast.
0: Hi, Steve. Thanks for your question. First off, you have a great voice. You should think about doing a podcast yourself. With respect to the NDAs, I think there's a lot of speculations swirling around. I have talked to a number of academics and lawyers since the news broke. The Trump White Houses compel people to sign non disclosure agreements. They're all shocked by it. They're all surprised by it. Uh, I did a An event at NYU Law School that was moderated by Bob Bauer, who used to be the White House counsel to President Obama, uh, who's a serious lawyer and knows a lot about how the White House works and how it's supposed to work. He was taken aback by it, never heard of anything even remotely like that in his White House or in prior White Houses. I don't know if it's unlawful to ask people to enter into such an agreement. It seems to be the case that it's almost certainly unenforceable given public records, laws, and given transparency laws but it seems to me that it would interfere with people's function and some of the terms certainly seem really unenforceable like a20 million dollar penalty for violating the non-disclosure agreement. Another term that's been reported is that the NDA extends long past the time of service that the person had in the White House so it's an odd thing it's a weird thing it bespeaks a certain paranoia I think on the part of the president it's also you know the height of I guess juicy irony that people decided to leak the thing that is supposed to require them not to leak. But again, I'm only speaking from the reporting. I I would love to see a copy of one of these NDAs and actually read the fine print. You know, a lot of people don't read the fine print and they make judgments about things and they speculate. I don't know how broad it is. Based on the reporting, it seems crazy. But I would really like to revisit this point once we see an actual version of a document. My guest this week is Chuck Rosenberg. He's had pretty much every big job in law enforcement, from U.S. attorney to head of the Drug Enforcement Administration. He's worked for Bob Mueller, Jim Comey, and John Ashcroft. Chuck Rosenberg is coming up. Stay tuned. Chuck Rosenberg, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. You and I have known each other for a long time, and I want to say, I've admired your career for a long time, you've done a lot of different jobs. Your most recent job, let's just start with this, your most recent job was as administ- acting administrator of the DEA.
1: That's right. The Drug Enforcement Administration. And you left that job. How come? A couple of reasons. Uh, one Preet is I didn't want to stay too long. I think people sometimes stay too long in a job and there's a value in having someone else come in and kick the tires, frankly. Did I get things right, the changes that I made, do they make sense? I don't know. I think so. That's why I made those changes. But there's a value to an organization in having someone else come in and take a look. But more immediately, Preet, I was pretty upset with some of the things I was seeing. I'm not a political guy. I've never have been, and I don't intend to be. I was concerned about some of the things I was hearing, in particular the president's statement to a group of police officers in Suffolk County that it was okay to mistreat defendants. I sent out an email to everybody in the DEA stating my position And I knew after I wrote that, although it was incredibly liberating, uh, that it would be time for me to go. This is a
0: question people keep asking, right? And it comes up on the podcast from time to time. Is it better to stay in a position, you know, exert influence and change things and and do a good job? Because I had to face this decision also when I decided to stay as U.S. attorney was short-lived, but I decided to stay at one point. Or is it better to leave? And if you leave, do you talk about it or do you not? Just because you were upset about some of the things that were being said, why why did that cause you to actually decide to
1: leave? Well, again, there were two reasons for leaving. This was only one of them. Uh, that's an incredibly uh, individual decision. I don't know that there will ever be a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. And frankly, I wrestled with it. I struggled with it. I'm still not sure I got it right. Uh, there's something to be said for staying and fighting. There's something to be said for uh, folding up your tent. But after two and a half years, I decided to fold up my tent. Now, there's another piece to that, Preet, which is that my deputy administrator is phenomenal. I had complete confidence in him. Uh, he's a terrific person. He cares deeply about the agency. He came up through the ranks, and frankly, I thought he would do a better job than me in running it. It's been
0: reported, for example, that Don McGahn was asked by President Trump to cause the firing of Bob Mueller, and it's been reported. I don't know if it's true or not that Don McGann said, I'll resign if you push that, and apparently Donald Trump backed down if you believe the reporting. Was that appropriate if true?
1: It's possible that it's true. If it's true, it's appropriate. If he felt that for him, that was the Rubicon. He couldn't do that one thing, and if he was forced to do that one thing, he would leave. A very individual decision. But if Don McGahn, and I don't know the gentleman, were threatening to resign seven times a day, uh, he would lose some credibility. Something could happen and Don might believe, I shouldn't call him Don because I don't know him, Mr. McGann would believe that that's it. He really either has to have his way or he has to go. That's fine, that's his call. Um, but I don't think you do that lightly and I find it hard to believe that everyone is threatening to resign as often as we hear. What about on the issue of uh, if you are disparaged publicly
0: in a high-profile way by your boss? So if you were Jeff Sessions during that period where the president was stating publicly on a fairly regular basis how upset he was, how angry he was, reports came out that he yelled at him for doing the one thing the career people told him to do, which was recuse himself from the Russian investigation for obvious reasons, and looked like he had no confidence in the attorney general, you still show up for work.
1: Yes. But I think you left out an important question. Did Mr. Sessions feel like he had done the right thing? And if the answer to that is yes, then you show up the next day and you do your job. The answer to that is no. If he had really messed something up significantly or repeatedly, and he was drawing that same criticism, maybe the analysis is a bit different. How did you feel just as a person, not as a head of a law enforcement agency, when you heard
0: the president sort of casually discuss how cops should mistreat defendants when they're putting them in the squad car, that kind of thing. Disgusted. Are people surprised that a person who's in law enforcement was disgusted by that? Because I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about how federal law enforcement officials think about their jobs. Because I hear people all the time say, uh, when they describe what the job of a federal prosecutor is, or a cop or a DEA agent and they say, you know, their job is to put people in prison, Is that the job?
1: No, that's not the job. What's the job? The job is to do justice. And sometimes that means um, convicting someone and seeking a jail term. And sometimes that means walking away entirely from a case. Doing justice is our job, not putting people in prison and certainly not mistreating uh, the defendants that we encounter. Do you think some people,
0: though, in law enforcement were encouraged and cheered by
1: the president's admonition not to be coddling to defendants? Well, there's some people who believe the earth is flat, Preet. There's a lot of people in law enforcement, uh, and they run the gamut, right? There's a bell curve that describes all sorts of human traits. And I have no doubt that there's a bell curve that describes people in law enforcement. But let's talk about sophisticated, thoughtful people in law enforcement, state, federal, local. I presume that they shared my disgust. Uh, I presume that they don't condone that type of behavior, in their departments. I know we don't condone it in federal law enforcement. And I can only speak for myself, but I was disgusted.
0: What kind of support do you think elected officials, you know, mayors, governors, presidents, should give law enforcement? Should they should they just stay the hell out of everything having to do with law enforcement? I mean, that's not possible because, you know, public safety issues are things that elected officials are supposed to be thinking about. And you know, if they fund and decide what resources to give to local police departments and to the federal agencies. Do you have a view on what elected people should be saying or not saying and how they should be helping the cause of law enforcement?
1: They ought to ask hard questions because we're not perfect and we get stuff wrong. We are responsible to them. We are accountable to them, just as we're accountable to all citizens. They shouldn't give us a blank check, either literally or figuratively. But if you're going to criticize us, and sometimes the criticism is appropriate, try to understand what it is we do and how difficult the job is. We are fallible. We make mistakes. We try to fix them ourselves. And sometimes I think the criticism of law enforcement takes on an overtly political tone. What do you mean by that? Typically, at least in my experience, whether it's in the U.S. Attorney's Office or the FBI or the DEA, wherever I've been privileged to serve, those mistakes, in my experience, have always been down the middle mistakes. They haven't been because we're trying to favor one side over the other. We get stuff wrong, but we're not trying to tip the scales. If a politician, and here I'm thinking about, obviously, the president who's been saying a lot of
0: things, if he perceives that law enforcement has been unfair, like a lot of targets, right? You and I have experience with this. Targets don't like to be investigated. And if you have a forum and a platform and a bully pulpit, and there's no bigger bully pulpit than the president's, they attack the prosecutor. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's it's not new. If it's a democracy and free speech is accorded to everyone, what's wrong with a president who, like any other high-profile defendant, doesn't like to be investigated,
1: attacking the agencies? The president is not quite like any other high-profile defendant. Implicit in your question is the answer. He has a bully pulpit that nobody else has. Right? He has a forum that nobody else has. He's free as a private citizen to criticize whatever he wants to criticize. He's even free as the president of the United States to criticize whatever he wants to criticize. But it has to be thoughtful. And it has to be with an eye toward the fact that federal law enforcement agencies, the FBI, the Department of Justice, are part of his executive branch. If there's really truly a problem, then there are lots of ways to fix it. Simply castigating these folks in public for trying to do their job is not a way to fix it. I wonder if this is what goes on in President Trump's head, and I haven't heard anyone
0: say this, but it occurs to me, he might be saying, well, that's a very good argument, Mr. Chuck Rosenberg, that, you know, people attack institutions, and obviously, as a consequence it undermines people's faith in those institutions, but you know what? The presidency is an institution also, and I was elected, duly elected by the people of the country, and every time I open up the paper or go on social media, I'm being attacked, my family is being attacked, the presidency is being attacked... And nobody seems to have a lot of concern about the undermining of that institution. So why can't I give as
1: good as I get? He might think that way. It's hard to know precisely how he thinks. I would suggest, Preet, that that is not coming from Bob Mueller or the men and women working for Bob Mueller. They're keeping their heads down and doing their jobs, best I can tell. And so he might be upset. He might be concerned, but he is nevertheless undermining the work of law enforcement.
0: When you were a U.S. attorney in Texas and in Virginia, did you ever get attacked publicly or your office for cases that you
1: investigated and brought? And how yeah. did you deal with that? It happened occasionally, and I dealt with it by ignoring it. I, did it bother you? On a personal level, sure. I mean, it's hard to ignore these things sometimes. On a professional level, no, not really, because I felt in my heart of hearts uh, that we were going about our business in the right way. And I would add to that, Preet, that we're really not in a position to respond to every single attack. When we talk, we talk in court. If we have something to say, we say it in a courtroom. That's how we do our business. And so we're all human. Sure, it bugs us. uh, But sometimes you just have to keep your mouth shut. The reason I ask that question is a
0: lot of people have a high opinion of Bob Mueller. Some people don't. You and I are both in the camp of having a high opinion of Bob Mueller. And I had the privilege of working for him. And when, he, when people get asked the question about him, you know, when he gets criticized and his character assassination, everyone always answers by saying, Bob Miller ignores it, doesn't bother him, he doesn't pay attention to it. And, and so I wonder if that's really true. You separated out how you felt about it professionally versus personally. I have yet to meet a human, and, you know, notwithstanding Bob's status as almost superhuman, according to some people, he's still a human being.
1: It must bother him on some level, or, or do you think no? He might be the one guy who it doesn't bother. Having worked for him for about a year, a little more than a year right after 9-11, I can't imagine a person under more pressure than Bob Mueller. And I've never seen anyone wear it so gracefully. And so maybe at some level it does bother him. Maybe he tells somebody about how he feels. But all I saw at work every single day a guy doing his job, and usually for you know six and a half days a week, 18 hours a day. If it bothered him, I never saw a manifestation of that.
0: I sometimes wonder, when you're at the top of an organization, you're the U.S. attorney, or the head of the DEA or chief of staff to the FBI director, and you see this nonsense happening, political nonsense at the high level, does that really affect how the line prosecutor who's going to the neighborhood and interviewing witnesses in the push-in robbery case, how he or she feels about the job and how they do the job. You know, you're at a high level, I'm at a high level. And we think about this stuff a lot and have to deal with it, right? You have to be the spokesperson for your agency. But you know what? The grinding, difficult, laborious work that is in the pursuit of the right thing at the line level in court where it's gritty and the rubber meets the road and all of that happens
1: does it matter or not? Here's how I would break it down, Preet. You can still be mission-focused. You can still be mission-oriented. You could still be going into the neighborhoods to interview witnesses and into court to present your case and doing it just as hard as you've always done it, right? with all the things we expect our line prosecutors to do. And it can still bug you. You can still be disgusted. It can still undermine your morale. And so if the question is, are these folks still doing their jobs? The answer, I think, is absolutely. If the question is, does it affect them in some way? The answer, I think, is absolutely. But what's your advice to them?
0: So you left the DEA for a particular reason. If in that same week, you know, three young people came to you and said, you know, I'm interested in law enforcement. I believe in the mission. I want to help the public. I believe in public safety. I'm thinking about applying to the DEA. What would you say
1: to them? I would say do it in a heartbeat.
0: How do you explain that?
1: Right. So it seems a little contradictory. I get that. Um, But when I think back on my career, I would not have changed a thing. There are high points and there are low points, but the arc of that career was better than I could ever have imagined. And so right now, I think we're in a particularly difficult time, but that's only a data point. That's all. And over time, those data points get smoothed. So when I think about what I got to do, the privilege and responsibility that was handed to me—if somebody asked me, would I do it again? The answer is yes. And if someone asked me, should they do it? The answer is yes. But don't you think um, every agency has problems? Sure. What were the big uh, pro- well? I would say it broader than that. Every every place where you have more than one human being, yeah, even sole proprietorships have problems too. <laughs> sole proprietorships have problems, <laughs> but you put two or more people in a room and um you will have problems. Yeah, but and and the power that folks in law enforcement have is greater
0: than in, you know, a mom and pop store. How do you make sure? Because this is an issue we talk about, and it's a legitimate issue whatever side you're on on a particular matter. How do you make sure, given the people are people, that there's no bias in how someone does an investigation? I, I think that's a sort of central question that we have. And if you have examples from your own time in your various jobs of when you spotted bias or you were concerned about the appearance of bias, that seems to be an important issue at the
1: moment. And In fact, I think the notion of implicit bias is really an important thing for all of us to embrace. You may have a view of me that isn't sort of at the surface, right? You may have something you think I am or believe that I think in a certain way based on how i look, where i grew up, where i went to school, you may not even be able to articulate the bias that you have, but nonetheless it's there and perhaps helps you to form some of your decisions or your opinions about me. We all carry some implicit bias. And i think we need to understand that and i think we need to confront it, and it's a hard thing to do. How do you do it? I mean i think there's there have been movements over time to
0: have sort of bias training or discussions of implicit bias. At law enforcement agencies, I think that was beginning to happen, you know, right before I left office. Is that work or is that
1: sort of liberal mumbo jumbo like some people think? I think it works. I would have liked to have seen it sort of mature a bit. I think there's a value then discussing it. Now, I'm not sure we're going to change the hearts and minds of everyone, but there's some number of people who are open to it and who will benefit from those discussions. Look, we all carry biases. Some of us try really, really hard to never act on those, but we all carry them. What about political
0: bias? So there's been a lot of debate lately about whether or not certain FBI agents had it out for the president and that might have affected their conduct. And that's legitimate to be asked. But in any law enforcement agency, people are citizens, not just law enforcement agents, and they don't always check their politics at the door, I guess. What's the line between being allowed to have a political opinion in your head and whether or not you can work on a particular kind of case.
1: So I actually do think people tend to check their political views at the door. And that's informed by my own experience uh, as a line prosecutor for many years in the Eastern District of Virginia. We never talked about politics. And I can tell you I never knew how anyone else thought or voted or donated in all the time I was there. Now, I do remember an incident once uh, when someone must have been driving someone else's car into our garage because walking out one day, I saw a bumper sticker for a particular candidate on the back of someone's car. I don't want to overstate this, Preet, but it was a little startling. I still don't know what my colleagues' views are and whether they were just borrowing a car or whether they subscribed to that view, but I had never seen that in my office before. And if you think about that, it's actually kind of cool. We left politics at the door. So that's one way that, in a bad way, that
0: your sort of personal attitude about something can affect how you do your job. But another thing happens when you prosecute cases, particularly violent cases, and you have prosecutors and agents who get very passionate about it because there's a victim, somebody was killed, somebody was harmed, or someone is in fear. Is the prosecutor or the agent supposed to always, you know, have a detachment from the case? Or is it okay to get sort of angry, uh, you know, deeply moved by the victims such that it drives you forward to try to hold
1: the person responsible accountable? Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And we're not robots. It would be impossible to factor out those emotions. We see lots of victims, elderly people who have been defrauded, young folks who have been molested or abused in some way. We see lots of bad stuff, and it would be crazy to think that we don't have a reaction to that. It's okay to have that reaction. It's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to do all sorts of things. What you can't do is break the rules. What you can't do is let that emotion sort of overcome your judgment when it comes to providing discovery, right, or playing by the rules. Right. But what about something else? What about how
0: it goes to bias and whether or not in zeal to get the bad guy because of the, the crushing loss to the victims?
1: You rush to judgment a little bit. Yeah. That's where you have to be careful. Yeah. And that's where you have to bounce things off of other people. So you don't tend to prosecute or investigate in a vacuum. Uh, Agents have other agents around them. Prosecutors have other prosecutors around them. We have systems in our offices to make sure that we are not doing what you just described. Did you ever have a case that made you cry? Sure. 9-11.
0: By way of background, 9-11 obviously was one of the worst days in modern American history, maybe the worst day. And it affected multiple places, including obviously the Twin Towers in Manhattan, which is located in the Southern District of New York but also the Pentagon.
1: And when one of the terrorist planes crashed into the Pentagon on 9-11, what was your job? I was in private practice. It was one of the two times I was at a law firm. And I decided that day that I was going to quit and go back into government. And that's how I ended up working at the FBI for Bob Mueller. So in the aftermath of 9-11, I worked on the staff of Bob Mueller at the FBI, on the staff of John Ashcroft when he was the attorney general on the staff of Jim Comey when he was the deputy attorney general. And then, somewhat ironically, later, as the United States attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, the place I started as a prosecutor and the place in which the case against Zacharias Massawi, the 9-11 conspirator, was being brought. So Zacharias
0: Massawi was someone who was prosecuted jointly by my old office and your old office. Remind people who he was.
1: Well... Let me first start by saying who he was not. He was not the 20th hijacker. Yeah, why does everybody think he was the 20th hijacker? Well, there were 19 hijackers on four planes. Three of the planes had five, and one had four. And so the math suggests that there was a 20th hijacker who never made it on the plane. He was part of what al-Qaeda hoped would be a second wave, people who were trained in much the same way some of the hijackers were trained to fly commercial airliners into buildings. He was arrested in Minnesota. He had trained in Oklahoma. And he was the only person ever brought to trial in federal district court, civilian court, in the United States in connection with the attacks of 9-11. As part of that, Preet, the FBI and the men and women from your office and my office interviewed hundreds of families who lost loved ones, hundreds of victims, in order to present at trial, at the sentencing phase, a story of that loss. And it was heartbreaking. And I sat in the courtroom every single day as the U.S. attorney with tears rolling down my face. It's almost impossible not to cry when you listen to these stories of loss and of devastation. That's not the only time that happened to me. It's happened to me other times, But that is certainly of a different scale. What did you say
0: to the victim when I had similar experiences? What did you say to the victims? What did they want from
1: you? There isn't one answer to that. And I'm sure you found that as well, Preet. Some of them wanted to talk about the person they had lost. Some of them had technical questions about the proceedings some of them were awkward, some of them were outgoing, some of them laughed, some of them cried. Everybody reacts a little bit differently. And so you take them as they come. Did you ever wish you didn't have to go through that process because it was so painful? No. In fact, it was a privilege to go through that process. It was a privilege to be part of that case. Now, I came in as U.S. attorney toward the end. I don't want to overstate my role. I had worked on it in those other jobs, but I came in toward the end as U.S. attorney And it was, for me, a defining case. I remember as a little boy going down to the World Trade Center with my dad, who worked on Day Street. He was a customs house broker. And my job would be to run documents back and forth from his office into one of the towers where U.S. customs offices were. Did he pay you for that? He didn't. He didn't. I don't
0: know if that's cool.
1: He was a great dad, and I miss him. Um, But no, he didn't pay me. But we would sit out there and have lunch together in the um, plaza of the World Trade Center. That was his office for years and years and years. He was alive when those attacks occurred. And like many people, not just in New York, but around the country and around the world, it broke his heart. And so to be a part of that was an enormous privilege.
0: You know, it's a very difficult issue, and you and I were both federal prosecutors, so you know, we probably had a bias for that reason, although I think it's the right call. But presumably we had a bias in favor of civilian trials for people who engaged in that kind of horrible conduct. And there are other people who say, well, they're not criminal acts, they're acts of war. There's an argument for that. And so, unlike Massawi, those folks who are responsible should be tried in a military court, military tribunal, and shouldn't appear in civilian court. Do you have a view on that?
1: I do, not surprisingly. And my view is similar to yours. I, I am very strongly biased to the system in which I grew up, to Article Three courts, to a known and transparent set of rules and regulations, and by the way, to a legacy of success. So not just Miss Sally, but if you look at the Southern District of New York, the Eastern District of New York, the Eastern District of Virginia the northern district of illinois those offices that typically bring the big cases we have had a legacy of success in these cases that i think is unmatched now that's not the reason to do it but it's a reason not to fear bringing terrorism cases in civilian court but it's not but here's
0: the problem with that and i agree with it but i just want to take the other point of view i think there are some people who do fear it because the civilian system does have some protections for the defendant and whether it's a bank robbery defendant or an embezzlement defendant or a terrorism defendant and so as you know when you go to trial against someone it's not a foregone conclusion what's going to happen and you could get an acquittal and then somebody who you believe there's overwhelming evidence you know killed people in America as a terrorist walks free that's how the system is supposed to work Imagine a terrorist got charged and and the public view was the person had done it and was acquitted for some reason. What do you think would happen to civilian trials after that?
1: So what gives that system of civilian trials such strength and credibility is precisely what you described. The fact that it's transparent, the fact that there are rules to protect defendants, and the fact that the United States government can lose in its own courts. That's actually unbelievably cool if you think about it that there's no presumption that the United States is going to win in its court because it's the United States. If you don't have the evidence and you don't have the law, then you're going to lose, and that's how it should be. And so you always run the risk of acquittal, but the track record is incredibly strong because we bring good cases with lots of evidence. And if you do lose, you might feel awful. It might be, in your mind, an unjust outcome, but that's okay. That's the price we have to be willing to pay. It doesn't happen that often, by the way. As you know, the conviction rate is in the mid to high 90% range. And for terrorism cases, I think your office and mine have had enormous success.
0: That's true. Look, but, you know, let's say frankly, we had a terrorism case under my watch. The trial happened under my watch. The crime happened many, many years earlier. It was the bombing of the embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. And the only person ever brought to trial out of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, was Ahmed Gailani, who was charged as a participant in those bombings. And we, you know, under prior administration in my office, convicted four people of those bombings, but then this other person was in Guantanamo Bay. And after I became U.S. Attorney in 2009, he was tried on over 200 counts. Uh, 224 people, I believe, died in the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. And I, I sat in the courtroom when we heard there was a verdict, and count one not guilty, count two not guilty, count three not guilty, count four not guilty, and I started to uh, almost <laughs> pass out and looked at the criminal division chief, Rich Zabel, who was sitting next to me, thinking, what, what on God's earth is happening? Count five guilty, and then count six through 200-something not guilty. Now, at the end of the day, that was sufficient to get him life in prison, and he'll never walk free again, and that's the right result. But I don't know what went on to cause there to be only one guilty conviction out of so many counts. And I think that freaked out a lot of people and is one of the reasons why
1: some folks didn't want to see Khalid Sheikh Mohammed brought into a civilian courtroom. I understand that. Can I ask you a question, even though it's your podcast? Yeah, please. (laughs) Would you have done it any differently? No. Why? Because all we did in connection
0: with that case, and it began, obviously, before I got there, was figure out the most... Aggressive way within the law to prove our case. Now there are some obstacles because Guyilani had been treated in a particular way, and there was a lot of motion practice with respect to his treatment. But we put our best people on it. We had the best agents on it. We followed every rule. We had a great judge, Judge Kaplan of the Southern District of New York, who's presided over a lot of these kinds of cases. And everything that people did in court was done aggressively but honorably and within the rules. And I think it's a testament to their, professionalism,
1: dedication, and commitment. But,
0: you know, people were in a little bit of a
1: daze after that. For your listeners, even with that one count of conviction, Galani got a sentence of life imprisonment. Let me ask you another question. Had he been acquitted on all charges, would you have done anything differently? No. But, boy, would that have been a bad day for a lot of things. But bad days happen, and that's the cost of doing business. We know that when we go into court with good cases... We sometimes lose, but that's okay. That's the trade-off we make in our system. It doesn't happen that often, and fortunately, it did not happen in the Galani case. But I think we have to, as a society, be willing to accept that risk. In fact, we are. It makes me... Or you could keep them in Guantanamo Bay indefinitely with no trial and not have to worry about it. It makes me crazy to see what's not happening in Guantanamo Bay. My strong preference would be for those cases to be tried in the United States. Preferably in the Eastern District of Virginia, but the Southern District of New York would be a good backup. (laughs) We
0: were supposed to do Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was going to be tried jointly by your old office and my old office.
1: Right. I think these cases should be in federal criminal court in the United States of America under the rules that you and I know and love. And sure, there's always a risk. There's a risk that someone is acquitted, but it's much more likely that the cases will be resolved and they'll be resolved in a fair and transparent way. And that fairness and that transparency gives our system of justice enormous credibility around the world.
0: The toughness of that debate, by the way, of whether or not it should be in a civilian court or in Guantanamo Bay, is amplified by the lack of full consensus on the part of the victims. You know, your office, my office, we both have met and spoken with a lot of victims of 9-11, and there are a healthy number of them who want closure and want the vindication that is owed to them under any system of justice in the world of seeing the the wrongdoers be tried, convicted, openly, publicly, and then get the punishment that they deserve. But there are also a lot who don't think that and who have a different view from, from your view and think that they should remain in Guantanamo Bay and have that process. And they're entitled to that view. And in particular, they're sort of entitled to that view And that view should be respected because they have suffered more than we lawyers who didn't
1: lose someone in the tragedy. How do you talk to those folks? There's no question that they have suffered losses that we can't imagine. And I agree that their views have to be respected. Let me talk about victims more broadly and not just about the victims of 9-11. You and I have both met with lots and lots of victims in all sorts of criminal cases. And they often have strong views over what should be done or what sentence should be received or how someone should be charged. And we try and take that into account and we talk to them and we explain things, but we're not always on the same page and we never will be always on the same page. And sometimes we have to substitute our judgment for their passion. We have to explain it. We owe that to them. We owe them that dialogue. We owe them the benefit of our rationale, but in the end, we're the ones paid to make legal decisions based on the facts that we have. And so we have to do everything we can to accommodate them, but sometimes our judgment has to supplant their passion. I, I, I hope that doesn't come across as disrespectful. No, not at all. No, that's why I think it's useful. No, I don't think so at all. Because I know there's a group of people out there who will um, react strongly to the notion that, you know, we substitute our judgment for their desires it's a difficult issue there's an argument that you know
0: since talking about bias and it's a totally understandable bias the most biased person in the connection with any criminal proceeding is perhaps the person who's the victim and in my experience the person who's the victim is the most hawkish on what the prosecutor should do you know we had a kidnapping case once that involved the abduction of a child from a hospital and wasn't reunited with the biological parents for like twenty two years. And people become very eye for an eye in that context. And it's totally understandable. And you cry when you hear the story. And the parents would say, Well, we didn't have our daughter for twenty two years. So the the woman who abducted her should get twenty two years. And we think of ourselves as being sort of rational and following the sentencing guidelines and, you know, what the law allowed. But you know, there's a, there's a compelling that's why it's in the Bible perhaps but that's not how the system of law works. And one of the most difficult things I know in both of our experiences has been to understand where the victim's advocacy is coming from, empathize with it, try to do the best you can with what you have, but the obligation still is to the law, which is not always going to be fully satisfactory to everyone, and that includes the victims.
1: There's nothing fully satisfactory to those who lost loved ones, for instance, on 9-11, full satisfaction would be getting their loved ones back, and that's not going to happen. And so we're automatically talking about imperfect substitutes. A a sentence of years, a death penalty, fines, are all, to one degree or another, imperfect substitutes. And so when you start to talk about imperfect substitutes, you should expect that you're going to have widely divergent views on which ones are adequate in my view none are because the only thing that's perfect in terms of restitution would be bringing loved ones back and we can't do that i'm sure you got this a
0: lot when you were the head of the dea what do you say to people who's who say you know the war on drugs is stupid the war on drugs is overly expensive the war on drugs is counterproductive why bother anymore what do you say to those people
1: yeah, I think that argument sweeps too broadly. I mean the war on everything is sometimes seems futile. The war on child pornography, there's still child pornography. The war on bank robbery, there's still bank robbery. The war on tax evasion. Now people don't talk about bank robbery and child pornography and tax evasion in those terms, but we've never eradicated any of those things simply because we enforce the law against it. I hate the term war on drugs. I've never used the term war on drugs. It is a crime, because Congress has said it's a crime. It's our duty to enforce the law. And so we do it, and we try and do it in a thoughtful way. And by thoughtful, I mean at the very highest levels, not at the um, bottom of the ladder, but at the top of the ladder, not with addicts and people selling on the street, but with cartels and the gangs, the distribution networks in the United States that move this poison around our cities. So I don't like the term, but law enforcement has never eradicated an ill. They make dents in it. But all these things exist, all these societal ills exist, despite law enforcement's efforts. What about the war on terror? Do you like that term? I guess I just don't like that terminology. It seems more fitting there than war on drugs. I think of this as a law enforcement mission, not as a war. And that's the way I've tried to talk about it when I was at the DEA. In my last year in office,
0: I began to focus a lot more on this burgeoning crisis in the country, the opioid crisis, And I know you had to focus on it and did focus on it in your time
1: at the DEA. Is it even worse than we think? It's pretty awful. We're going to lose something like 67,000 people to a drug overdose this year. By the way, I think that number is understated in a couple of ways. There's a lot of people who overdose but don't die because of the intervention of first responders. And then there is almost inevitably an undercount and the number of overdoses reported. And we don't know what that number is. Is it a five-to-one ratio, a 10-to-one ratio? So 67,000, which is a horrific number, is the minimum number of people we're losing to drug overdoses. That said, about two-thirds of that number are opioid-related. And here's how that happens, Preet. We are 5% or so of the world's population as Americans, but we are responsible for, account for, consume in one way or the other, about 99% of the world's hydrocodone and about 80% of the world's oxycodone. That's a stunning number. If you get addicted to that stuff, if you get addicted to pain pills, and that happens every day in our country, uh, those become crazy expensive on the street to buy in the black market. Heroin is anywhere from one-fifth to one-tenth the price And so what we see time and time again are people who get addicted to pain pills becoming addicted to heroin, and then at some point moving to fentanyl and synthetic opioids that are even stronger and killing them in vast numbers. We also know that four out of five heroin users started on pills, and we know that most people who get addicted to pills got those pills from someone who got them legitimately, meaning stuff that's just sort of sitting in your medicine cabinet. And so we have to change the culture. We have to rethink that if you have minor knee surgery or you have your wisdom teeth out, that we don't send you home with 30 oxycodone. You don't need it. And you can take Tylenol for it or some other non-narcotic pain reliever. But we have to wean ourselves off of hydrocodone and oxycodone and opioid pain relief. Why is this such a specifically American problem
0: based on the stats that you cited? I don't think there's as lopsided a drug problem
1: in any other area as this one. We see it in other countries. We just don't see it to this extent. Uh, I think in part it stems from uh, an over-reliance on mitigating pain. And I'm not specifically blaming doctors or dentists or PAs. I think we're all a part of the problem. Uh, We can give lower doses. We can give fewer pills. Or we could have uh, non-opioid pain relief Instead of oxy or hydrocodone, but it's going to take a reorientation. And I think that's exactly appropriate. Remember, again, there's no reason why we, as 5% of the population, would account for overwhelming percentages of the world's hydrocodone and oxycodone. Uh, And law enforcement alone will never solve that problem. Chuck Rosenberg been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thanks again. You know, Preet, I really enjoyed this, and I think you do a heck of a job on this. I really mean that. You're You're good at this, so thank you for having me on. Thanks. You read that perfectly. Thank you. Thanks. You wrote it perfectly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this is the point of the show where I talk about something that struck me in the news, may have been overlooked a little bit. There was this week, as there often is, a lot of news about Russia. There's a continuing outrage over the poisoning of a former spy— in Salisbury in the UK, which Theresa May, the Prime Minister, says is almost certainly at the hands of Russia, and almost every keen observer thinks it had to have been ordered directly by Vladimir Putin. And just this last Sunday, in a shocking development, Vladimir Putin was reelected to be the leader of the Russian Federation for another six years. And And what every observer understands to be as far as possible from a free and fair election And that made even an additional amount of news because apparently Donald Trump, by his own admission, called up Putin to congratulate him, uh, even though he was advised by his staff not to congratulate him and did not mention the outrageous poisoning of the former spy in the UK. So there's all this news that's swirling around about Putin and his relationship with Trump and whether or not. America is doing enough to prevent meddling in the future election, and that's getting a lot of headlines. But another small thing happened this past week that I was privileged to be a part of, and it was a conference called PutinCon that focused on all the allegations relating to Vladimir Putin and the way in which he promotes autocracy and suppresses freedom and aggrandizes power for himself. And it was run by someone who you will recognize as a former podcast guest, former chess champion, Extraordinaire, Gary Kasparov, who, as a private citizen, is in some ways doing a lot more than elected officials, to shine a light on outrageous behavior by Vladimir Putin and to shine a light also on the ways in which Americans should be concerned about interference from Russia. And so I want to applaud him for having that conference that was attended by a lot of people, and also mention another former podcast guest, Bill Browder, with whom I got to have a discussion on stage at PutinCon. And in the wake of the president not seeming to care too much about Russian interference, and in the wake of some people not caring too much about human rights violations, as you'll recall, Bill Browder helped to pass in America a law called the Magnitsky Act, which, on one hand, avenged the death of his lawyer, who was essentially killed or allowed to die in a Russian prison for exposing corruption on the part of oligarchs close to Vladimir Putin, but on the other hand, actually has some teeth in freezing the assets of human rights violators out of Russia. So that you know about from the podcast. But since that time, Bill Browder has quietly been working in other countries to do the same thing. And as of this recording, the Magnitsky Act, or a version of it, because of Bill Browder's efforts, is not only the law in the U.S., but a version of it is also the law now in Canada, Estonia, Gibraltar, Lithuania, Latvia, and through a recently passed amendment, in the UK, also there. You might be asking yourself, what about some other large countries? Well, Bill is looking very hard and working very hard in both Australia and France, and I was surprised and concerned to hear that he's having a tough time in France, passing some version of the Magnitsky Act. France, if you're listening, pass the Magnitsky Act. At any point, people like Kasparov and Browder came to retaliated against because people are unhappy with the kind of light that they're shining on abuses in Russia, specifically on the part of Vladimir Putin. When we had this conference in midtown Manhattan last week, we had to have a huge police presence because of the security threat. So it's not easy work, especially when you have no formal power. It's in some ways thankless work, given that the president doesn't seem to support these measures. Uh, And it's also in some ways, I hate to say it, dangerous work. So they should be applauded and recognized for it. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Chuck Rosenberg. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara. Give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or send an email to Tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake Maccabee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.